Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Liverpool Echo. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics, from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue, and on this week's episode, Southport MP Damien Moore tells Rob Parsons why he wants people across the North to find out more about their local war memorials. I think that the service, the commitment and the, and, and many, you know, uh, the losses of life over over many years um, are, are the testament that our war memorials, and it is right proper, that everyone knows why they are there and the sacrifice that those people made so that we live our lives in a pretty free way today. And our latest local election update takes us to Stockport in Greater Manchester, where local democracy reporter Nick Statham takes us through the big issues. Labour and Lib Dems are neck and neck in terms of the number of councillors. They're the two groups vying for control of the council. It sort of puts the Conservatives in a bit of a kingmaker sort of position. But first, this week, the Lifelong Education Commission, in conjunction with the University of Salford, published a new report which found that higher technical education in the UK is in rapid decline. Over the last five years, enrolment in HTE courses has fallen by around 25%. With me now to discuss this is Salford's Vice-Chancellor, Helen Marshall. Helen, welcome. Thank you. I wondered, I suppose, if we could just start by uh, going through some of the key findings of the report and, and why it's significant. Well, I think starting off with the point you just made, there's been a drop, a decline of 25% of what I'll call level four, level five, higher technical qualifications since 2014. And there's nothing going on to actually raise that. Um, Why is that happening? Well, I think since Tony Blair put forward the 50% going to university and getting a degree, then those higher technical qualifications were perceived to have no prestige They were not the ones to go for. Um, And as they drifted, there was a lack of awareness of the opportunities to go and get them. And there are also funding issues, how the government is funding higher technical qualifications. So um, we've done done a lot of homework at Salford on this because it's an area that we're really moving into in in a significant way. Um, According to the Gatsby Foundation, Higher technical qualifications have three main functions. First of all, it's a direct route into a skilled job. It's a step towards advanced education and training and the ability to top up to a full degree at a later point should you wish to. 
And it's also really important in the upskilling and reskilling of people already in jobs. So do we need more higher technical qualifications? Yes, we do. Now, an example, I'm a a boring lawyer, so uh, we get into the industry 4.0 space and it's um, quite entertaining. Um, So let me just give you a really simple example that hopefully everyone will be able to understand because it's one I understand. Motor cars. We have diesel and petrol engines right now. They are the vast majority of our motor cars. In 10 years time, we will have electric vehicles and possibly hydrogen powered vehicles. And how many petrol and diesel engines will we have? Probably hardly any. So what's going to happen to all those car mechanics? Yeah, are they all going to be told, well, you've no longer got a job, clear off? Or are we going to reskill them and upskill them? And if we don't do that, where are we going to get the engineers to support and service our electric and hydrogen powered vehicles? So it's a really simple example that hopefully everyone will be able to understand. Now, you can morph that across a variety of different industry areas. And that's the world we're in. And we talk about the Industrial Revolution, first Industrial Revolution, second, third, fourth, hundreds of years over that period of time for four Industrial Revolutions. We're now in the fourth. When are we going to be in the fifth? It's not going to take 100 years. You'd be lucky if it takes a decade because things are moving at a pace that we have never seen before on this planet. So it's really, really important. Um, We will need to get a cadre of skilled people at different levels, level four, level five, level six, level seven, not just everyone at level six, because some of the degrees that people study are far too theoretical and don't necessarily provide the skills that people can walk, walk into a job and they're immediately good to go. So that's that's where we are at Salford, is, is, is really working on that agenda. I mean, you've given a really good and accessible example there. And, and obviously the government in the Level Up White Paper and, and before that as well have made much of kind of making this a bit of a priority. Where do you think we are at the moment? And is it going far enough to, I suppose, reverse this trend of, of, of a falling take-up? I mean, what I would say right now is it's not a future problem. It's a, it's a, it's a here and a now problem. And we, we have 11,500 job vacancies in digital jobs across Greater Manchester right at this moment. 54% of employers across Greater Manchester cannot fill the skills gap. And that's not just in digital. That's across a vast majority of, of industry areas. Even universities are struggling I mean, we, we recruited someone about nine months ago in cybersecurity. Um, six months in, uh, an American organization offered him a significantly higher salary and off he went. So it's becoming like a football transfer market out there, not just for the universities, but for, for, for people in industry jobs as well. And we have to, we have to increase that skills pipeline, um, not just around Greater Manchester, right across the country. And I, I have a saying, you, you have to bring two pieces of the jigsaw together. If the government really wants to move into uh, an economic space that is led and driven by Industry 4.0 industries and jobs, it has to put that skills pipeline in there. And it's a very iterative process. If you don't grow one, you won't grow the other. So if you've, you've got a skills pipeline, let's say we've got massive skills pipeline in Greater Manchester. They're all there, but there are no jobs. So what will happen? We'll end up with a ghost town and all those people will go elsewhere and get jobs. So it's really putting those two pieces of the jigsaw together. And higher technical qualifications 
can deliver the solution, which is why we've put the bid in for the Greater Manchester Institute of Technology. We've been uh, very lucky. We've won that bid along with a number of other partners that we're working with across GM. It's not just Salford, uh, Wigan, uh, Tameside, Berry, and we've got a private provider, Ada, that's very good in the uh, digital space. That gives us the first footprint. We want to grow those partners, but in, it, you know, less is more to get us on the road and get us going. If we get that going from 2023, then yes, we're on the road. I mean, just zoning in on Greater Manchester there, as you did, I mean, the, the report found that the low uptake of HT was a bit more acute in your region than at a national level. I just wondered kind of perhaps why that was. And I mean, as you've already alluded to that, I mean, is that feeding into a wider skill shortage in the area, do you think? Um, we, we don't totally understand that. We're doing some homework on it at the moment. Um, one of the things that we are seeing when we're talking to um, people in schools and colleges of, of kids potentially going to universities, we, we've got them in two spaces. One, yes, I'll go to university and do a degree, or no, I'm not going to university. That conversation about higher technical qualifications is just not happening. Um, we, we've got HNDs at Salford. We've had them for you know, best part of 20 years um, in quantity surveying and in a number of areas in the built environment sector. Um, we've still got higher national diplomas. Um, and industry is still very much asking for those. And I think it's about doing the work to show the opportunity and educate employers. A number of employers are coming to us and saying, we need this kind of person. And when we've examined what this kind of person really is, we realise it's someone with a higher technical qualification, an HND level qualification. And I call them knowers and doers. Their knowledge base is very good. They, they're doing equivalent of a first and second year of a degree, level four, and level five. But they're also doing a lot of practical skills, a lot of hands-on. So when they go into a job, they hit the ground running. And that's what employers want. They need that missing middle back. Um, and there's a big ask for it. So great opportunity for people. I just wondered, just interested to know what you made of uh, Andy Burnham's plan to take control of post-16 education in Greater Manchester. I mean, do you think that'll work? And do you think it'll kind of help rectify some of the, the issues that you've, you've spotted in this report? Yes, I do. And I think one of the things that, you know, Andy's talking about devolution. Um, one of the things that the government's got to, I think, uh, do is be more confident in districts like Greater Manchester. I mean, what, what we're doing here in terms of industry asks, what, what the need is in Greater Manchester, might be different in Birmingham, might be different in Bristol. There's still an ask, but it may be a different nature. And having local decision-making um, through things like innovation boards and, and areas like that, where you get the right people doing the right things because that's the local ask, I think is important. So, uh, and, and, you know, bringing that skills agenda much higher up um, the, the pecking order, if you like, I think is really important. And we've got massive opportunity in Greater Manchester. Um, and, you know, we're working at Salford on a science and innovation district where we want to bring Industry 4.0 employers into our science and innovation district We've just landed uh, significant funding from government for the Northwest Industrial Robotics Centre to improve productivity in SMEs. So they, we can 
robotize, if you like, a lot of their production systems, um, which will improve their productivity. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunity going on, but the government has got to give a little bit more power for local decision making, which means A, it's relevant to the local economy and B, we can do it faster. Earlier this week, the uh, House of Commons Science and Technology Committee were actually discussing technical education and there was a bit of a backlash after the government's advisor on social mobility suggested that there weren't more women and girls taking up things like engineering because, and I quote, there's a lot of hard maths in it. I mean, just how unhelpful are comments like that? They are unhelpful. I mean, you know, we find that it is harder to get girls to come into STEM subjects it's not it's not impossible but it is harder and there's it, it i think it's a cultural thing it's not an ability thing it's a cultural thing um so we, we are doing a number of things um to help this we've just signed a deal with an organization it's a charitable organization called into university and they provide kids from mainly deprived backgrounds mentors that support them over a number of years um, and they actually sit with them and do their homework with them and get them to work in particular ways and actually get the um, ability in those kids to the top notch. And they also work with the families. They meet with the families and discuss opportunities of going to university, HTQs, the whole lot with the family. So by the end of a two-year period of mentoring, those kids and the families are saying, yeah, I'm going to university. Now, we're doing that across the board, both with female and male students. But one of the areas that we are focusing on is very much about the opportunity for females um, at school to to look at STEM. So what we're then doing at the university, when the kids come for an open day, they don't sit in a room and have someone talk to them. They go in the lab and they play. So they go in the robot lab and they play with the robots. So we've got pet dog robots, we've got all sorts of robots, and the kids go in and play with them. They go in our makerspace and we get them to make something on these digital printers. So they come away with, um, you know, when I went in, I actually made a beer mat, which I thought was quite brilliant for me, given that I'm a boring lawyer. I actually pressed the right buttons. Um, So, you know, we're getting them hands-on, and girls are leaving saying, yeah, I can do this. Because there's an image, I think, of science and engineering, of oily rags and nuts and bolts, and girls are thinking, nah, that's not me. But that's not the world we're in anymore. You know, back in, in COVID, when we were all locked down, there were people operating production lines from their dining room table on a laptop. That's the world we're in. And so I think we're, we're starting, we, we've still got a lot to learn, but we are starting to improve our female uptake of STEM subjects at Salford. And I think that, can, that, that kind of work can be, you know, taken across the country and uh, finally um, i'm sorry to put you on the spot with this one helen but just <laughs> just just this afternoon um the government's further education minister michelle Donnellan, has published an article saying that she intends to bring forward a new law that will see universities and student unions being fined for supporting and i quote cancel culture uh, miss Donnellan on a in a piece for Conservative Home has said, universities should be a marketplace of ideas, but that's being prevented by intolerant woke bullies. I just wondered, does uh, Salford have a problem with intolerant woke bullies? No, we're not. Um, I mean, we're a very mixed community. We have people from lots of different backgrounds and we work very hard to, um, in the end, you're a human being with two arms and two legs. Beyond that, it doesn't matter. 
if you're doing what you need to be doing, that's fine. We, we you know, yeah, occasionally there are issues, um, but no, it's not a big problem at Salford. And we continue to have it high up our agenda to make sure that we, we talk openly about those issues if if any of those issues arise. So no, it's, it's not a massive problem. Um, I think there's... Yeah, I, I think government needs to be a bit more realistic. Does it make you uncomfortable the thought of a you know a government fine and potentially a student union in Salford for cancelling a, a talk by an academic or or or, or, a, or a guest speaker? I mean, is it right for the government to be getting involved in that way? Well, it does impact on. I mean, we you know the university sector has had a long period of time where freedom of speech within the university and. If, if someone is going to come and do a controversial something or other speech, then that's leading to a debate on something controversial, which leads to a, a way forward. If we don't talk about it and we bury it in the sand, I think that is potentially down the line a bigger problem. So, yeah, we're not, it's not a space that I would support, if I'm honest. It's something that unites big cities, towns and the tiniest villages and rural communities. Nearly all have a war memorial remembering those who served and tragically lost their lives in service of our country. But how much do we know about the war memorials near us and perhaps just as importantly, how well are these sensitive and important memorials being recorded for posterity. An initiative launched recently by Damien Moore, the Conservative MP for Southport on Merseyside, and supported by the Imperial War Museums, calls on the public to help document and verify the archives and records of our nation's important war memorials. The aim of the project is to complete as much of the war memorials record as possible by Remembrance Day on Friday the 11th of November 2022. It's been backed by almost 50 MPs from all parties. So let's hear a bit more about it from Damien himself. So Damien, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Hi Rob, it's great to be here. So just as a starter, what got you interested in this particular project? Well, like many things uh, in politics, it all got started with a conversation with a constituent who believed that our war memorial, the monument in Southport, hadn't been recorded. So obviously we looked into this for them uh, and we found out that it was recorded. Um, but I think that the Imperial War Museums understood, uh, obviously, that there there were ones that had not any records for. And so um, sometime after that, they launched this initiative. And because I had obviously contacted them uh, not too far in the distant past, they said, would I, would I like to help them launch the initiative, which is absolutely um, a tremendous honour to do. As you said in your introduction, you know, war memorials are founding uh, cities, towns, villages, you see them on roadsides, you see them in factories, you see them all over the place, commemorating the various wars and the lives of our servicemen uh, and women that have taken part in wars right throughout our history. It's important that they are recorded um, for posterity and that people know that they're there. They know the sacrifice from the places that uh, they're from. And uh, more and more these days, with obviously people looking at their ancestry, uh, looking at their ancestors and the service that they give uh, for this country. Yeah, absolutely. And the the essence of the project, I think, is that not all, like a, quite a big proportion of 
existing war memorials. There aren't photographs. They're not all being documented to the level that the Imperial War Museums might want for, you know, for future generations to be able to know exactly what's on them. That's absolutely right. Um, There are about 110,000 war memorials around the country. Um, and they know of 96,000, they're documented and they've, they've got uh, details on them. So there is a missing roughly 14,000 um, and they've got some great volunteers that go out and take pictures and send them in and record them. But now we're opening this up uh, to people up and down the country so that they, they can actually go onto the Imperial War Museum's website, look for those war memorials and actually then take pictures and get them recorded properly. And it's something that, you know, community groups, schools, everybody can get involved in this project. Um, It's a really good thing to do. Uh, And it actually, you know, it is something which is very, very worthwhile. So those people are not forgotten. And so I think that, you know, between now and November, we can fill in the blanks. We can get those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle filled in for people. Uh, And as I said before, you know, it's a very important thing that we do this. You know, I would say that probably the most important event that I ever go to uh, is Remembrance Sunday, where we do take that time uh, to uh, commemorate those uh, that have acted in service for this country and given their lives. Um, and they're on those war memorials that we all go to. So it's just absolutely vital that big or small, uh, that we know where these are. We have the documents uh, ready and waiting so that people can look at them. So what specifically, if people are listening to this, what, what do they need to do in their in their own local community? So if they go onto the Imperial War Museum's website, this is, uh, you'll be able to search for this campaign uh, and they will be able to look for all of the war memorials in their area. You'll get a list uh, that we produced um, and it will have archived whether they are photographed or not. And people can then go out and actually fill in the missing pieces and actually get those photographs and records of what people have done for their community can be done there. You often see these things on the sides of roads, and sometimes they're overgrown because over the years that people have not maintained, they've not been maintained, or you know they've been put somewhere which you know was pretty much on view or people used in times gone by. Uh, you know you've got to think about factories that are potentially abandoned now that would have had a war memorial in them, um, and now those factories may be derelict. You know, well we need to try and get them out if we can. Um, and we need to definitely get the photographs and so that the Imperial War Museum will help people. They're, they've got a fantastic team involved in this uh, and they will help people as much as they need it so that we can get as many of these records as possible. But, you know, as, as you started with, again, you know, this is, this is completely cross-party. It's the whole of our United Kingdom uh, and it is something that nobody uh, would not be uh, eligible to take part in. So I think that's fantastic stuff. And obviously, you you are the person who sort of are, are at the forefront of this. I mean, in your constituency, I'm guessing there's a lot of war memorials and presumably quite a few that, you know, residents might not know about or that might not be as visible or have the awareness that maybe maybe they should have. That, that, that's absolutely right. Um, we have a beautiful uh, war memorial uh, in, in Southport, a monument and two colonnades in the centre of Lord Street in the centre of our town. Uh, but there are so many others uh, in all the village centres, in churches, uh, in sporting clubs, that they have war memorials there. But it just, it's just about going around and making sure that that document, uh, there's the, the picture of it. And it's, it's, it's something which, yes, I will be taking part in myself. So not just, not just for others, you know, I will be doing that myself. We're already writing to schools and community associations 
in the constituency because obviously they're the people with the knowledge. There'll be many people that will be able to remember seeing those uh, when they were at school or when they went to a particular sporting uh, club or when they went to a particular church. Um, so it's something which that local knowledge is absolutely vital and critical because people will have seen them for you know many, many years and it's just making sure that they are recorded in, in the right way. When I was researching this uh, piece, I was just thinking, do I know where my own local war memorial is where I live in in North Leeds I I did have to google it and it it is sort of tucked away a little bit you wouldn't necessarily come across it um I think it's an interesting question isn't it about how much the younger yeah younger generations perhaps those who don't have you know distinct memories of the country being at war are aware of war memorials and what they're there for I think you alluded to this earlier but should, should we as a country be doing a bit more to increase awareness of the importance of war memorials and why, why why they're there. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I think that the service, the commitment, and the, and and many you know uh, the losses of life over over many years um, are, are the testament to that are war memorials, and it is right and proper that everyone knows why they are there and the sacrifice that those people made, so that we live our lives in a pretty free way today. I mean, that is absolutely. It was uh, the defeat, uh, obviously, in the Second World War of Nazi Germany, uh, but many wars before that, the First World War, and there are commemorations to other wars that have been fought as well. And this is this is not just one war; it's all war memorials where we've had people take part in combat to to, to actually, you know, live our lives the way we live them today. And I think that's incredibly important. But also through family history and research, you know, lots of people want to know about their ancestors these days, and there are some. Uh, great uh, tools to do that online where you can fill in the blanks with the with the um, census uh, but people actually want to go and you know see the name of their of their ancestor on a war memorial a grave or whatever it is but it's important that if we have those records it just made that bit easier you know um, you could have a an ancestor that was in one part of the country that might be on the war memorial for where you live because that's that's where they were at that time so it's helping also people fill in the background to themselves. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we can do to help this is you can actually have that uh, record which people can access online and actually see it um, if they can't actually get to it. It just makes this more accessible for everybody. Now, moving into the present day onto matters more more topical. Now, you, you'll be out and about, I suspect, on doorsteps in Southport campaigning ahead of local elections. And when you're speaking to residents, do you get the sense that for the Conservatives, Boris Johnson is still an electoral asset or with everything that we know about fines and party gay, are, are there concerns growing that for the Conservatives to keep winning in seats like yours, there might need to be a new person at the top of the party, if not now, but perhaps in, 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 you know, in, in the coming months? Look, I, I go out on the doorstep every Saturday. Uh, we've got local elections coming up. Uh, most of the people in my constituency are talking about very, very local issues that are going to affect them quite profoundly with some of the decisions that our council wants to make. Um, And I would say to you that uh, it's been those local issues which are very much at the forefront of people's minds. We have um, a campaign against some very damaging cycle lanes, which would run the full length of my constituency. Uh, We've had um, uh, some feedback on that um, from businesses which are saying we're very detrimental. We've also had more residents than ever before taking part in... um, online consultations for these things and so they they very very much charged 
uh, our, myself and our candidates in stopping these from ruining their town. That is the number one thing that's uh, come up on the doorstep for me. So fines and parties not really on people's agenda in, in South Park. I've, 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 been out, I've been out this week and it's not that the most important thing are a, is a very, very specific local issue in my constituency. I see. And perhaps a related question. You're, I think, a member of the Northern Research Group of backbench conservatives who are lobbying the government to stick to its promises on levelling up and tackling these big regional inequalities. Now, it, with everything else that's on the government's plate at the moment, and obviously there's no shortage of things in the inbox and the state of the public finances because of COVID, how do you feel the government is doing in keeping its levelling up promises? Are you, are you going to have, an, when, you, when you're trying to go for re-election, whenever that is, are you going to have enough to say about the success of levelling up and you and your fellow Northern backbench conservative MPs? Is, 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 is levelling up working out the way that you, you hoped it would? So what I would say is uh, for my constituency in Southport, levelling up is working because we were the recipient of a £38.5 million pounds hounds deal. So in terms of investment into Southport, this has been the most significant direct investment for a generation. Nobody can remember this much money going in uh, to investing in Southport for a long, long time. Nobody's ever come to me and challenged me on that. Uh, and I know myself that we've not seen anything significant in, in Southport in, in modern times. And so we are going to have the opportunity to completely transform our town uh, because of that, because of that levelling up agenda, because of the town deal money. Um, and actually, you know, we're doing what it says on the tin. So it's not designed in itself to solve all the problems because it just wouldn't be enough. But what it is designed is to anchor uh, private investment into Southport and, you know, talking to businesses now, um, you know, we've got a number of businesses that want to invest in Southport. We aren't just talking a couple of million. We're talking in the hundreds of millions of pounds, transformative stuff for a town that has been left behind, uh, for a town that's maybe been underrepresented, for a town that's not had its voice heard. I, I was determined to change that through this government. We're doing that. And already we're seeing the projects started. There will be more projects to come. Uh, and there is a real interest now in what we're doing in Southport because of that government faith and confidence. The second biggest uh, allocation of levelling up uh, in the country, something I'm very proud of, uh, but we've had a good team working on it. I think that things like the town deals, by the way, are the way forward where, where you're bringing partners in the community working together rather than just local councils. This is something we can feel absolutely proud of in our town, and we are going to make the most of it. And as I've said, um, hundreds of millions of pounds. I speak to businesses you know, every week um, that are looking at investing in Southport. So for me, um, I think we're doing that. Is there more to do? Of course there is. I think we do need better uh, transport infrastructure. Uh, I had Lord McLaughlin, as you know, is chairman of transport for the North. Now he came to Southport. We had a cross-party uh, round table meeting, very productive meeting, uh, where we had people from different parties and, and the different regions um, that were there. And there was agreement, which was really, really satisfying to see. It made his job very much uh, easier in one way, but harder because we all believed in the same thing. So it's he's got to deliver on it now, but we, we put a very good case forward. Um, and uh, we're very proud of uh, of the way that we work together to get the right things. So it wasn't just me as there, two other MPs there um, from South Ribble and West Lancashire. So it was really positive, productive. I will hold the government's feet to the fire on levelling up. It's very important uh, to my agenda. It's very important to my 
colleagues' agenda. And the final question, Damien, you, you'll have seen, I'm sure, this story in one of the Sunday papers about Angela Rayner, an anonymous Tory MP, briefing some pretty offensive stuff, I think, about her trying to distract the PM in the Commons by apparently crossing and uncrossing her legs. Uh, you've been an MP now for five years in the Commons, sort of uh, experiencing the, the cut and thrust of Westminster debate. I mean, what, what did you make of that Angela Rayner story? And do, do you think misogyny is an issue at Westminster, you know, on the back of that Angela Rayner article? Well, I mean, I think it was pretty extraordinary. It was not acceptable. I don't know why this uh, terrorist tittle-tattle became a story. I think the person that said it shouldn't have, I think it was uh, terrible. And I think that the newspaper shouldn't have picked it up either. I don't think there is an issue with misogyny, but these stories are uh, a distraction. They're not good. Uh, and I think that that person should do some very hard thinking if, if that's what they have said, uh, because it's not the kind of way that we should be doing things down here. Damien Moore, thank you very much. Thank you. We're now into the closing stages of campaigning for the 2022 local elections on May the 5th. And in our final stop on the campaign trail around the north, let's check in to Stockport in Greater Manchester, which could be one of the tightest election contests in our region. Currently under no overall control, depending on the results next week, we may see some backroom deals to determine who runs the council in the months to come. But to find out more, let's speak to Nick Statham, the local democracy reporter for Stockport. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for coming on. So maybe you can just bring us up to date with the political balance of power in Stockport. Has it always been a closely fought council as it is at the moment? Uh, well, it's been in no overall control for the last 11 years, Labour's been running it as the administration since 2016. Before that, it was Lib Dems. Going back to like the mid-70s, it's sort of, it's been through periods, long periods of low overall controls, and it's it started off as Tory, and it's, it's had periods where it's been Lib Dem, and periods where it's Tory, and also um, large sort of swathes of no overall control. And at the moment, we're in a bit of a curious position where Labour aren't actually the biggest group. They've, they've got 25 characters compared to Lib Dem's 26 but they are still running the council. They're the administration because of quite a complicated situation that happened last year where um, despite the Lib Dems sort of edging them at the local elections, Labour were able to sort of like remain at helm really because the Conservatives and the other opposition parties weren't really inclined to oust um, Elise Wilson, the council leader, who still had another year to, to run as leader. She's up for election uh, this year. Um, so Labour remained at a helm. So I think we're probably looking at no overall control again this year, but what's going what's gonna to play out after that um, is anyone's guess, really. Uh, it's interesting. So the Lib Dems were, could, in theory, have been in a position to control the council themselves, but decided not to. That's interesting. It was, it was more that they, that they could have done, but they didn't have a majority and the opposition groups weren't minded to oust at least Wilson, who's a Labour leader. So it's because of the, um, the way the constitution works, really, that Labour managed to sort of hold on to the reins, so to speak. And what do you think are likely to be the big local issues in terms of what's dominating the debate in Stockport this year in the next few days? In recent years, it's always been the GMSF, now known as Places for Everyone, but Stockport's infamously sort of came out of that. So in terms of overarching issues, I think the clean air zone could be a problem for Labour. Obviously, Labour will say that they're acting on, on a directive from the government. Uh, they were just implementing that, you know, what they were told to do. There's been some to and fro 
between well Andy Burnham and the ten councils and the, and the government. Nine of the council, but obviously nine out of ten of great majority of the councils are Labour controlled, including Stockport. So now they seem to be saying that it's going to be a non-paying clean air zone or CAS. It just depends really whether whether people buy that and whether people really trust Labour on that one or whether they think it's just been put on hold until until after the election, which is what you hear. Of course, there's very much another side of the argument as well, which is you know the green and the walk rides Greater Manchester. Uh, you know, the walking and cycling sort of lobby groups very much want to see measures such as that brought in to, to clean up the air and perhaps make and make for a safer environment for people who want to walk and cycle. So it's a bit of a balance there. I think that that's certainly going to come into play. I mean, it's more of a, more of a Greater Manchester-wide issue than a Stockport-specific one, but I think that's certainly going to be one of the big issues. And that sort of ties into something which is perhaps a bit more Stockport-specific, which are the active neighbourhoods, uh, also known, known as low-traffic neighbourhoods. They've been really controversial in Stockport. There was one in Heaton Chapel in South Reddish that was trialled. There was a lot of controversy over that with some of the residents saying that their ambulances were getting basically hitting dead ends and being delayed. Northwest Ambulance Service were, were basically saying no. That was being relayed by the council. who we were quite, quite um, forcefully saying, no, that's, you know, this, is, this isn't happening. This, you know, it's not the case. I was certainly being told that when I was contacting the NWAS um, press office and at worst it was minor teething problems until the chief executive of MWAS then wrote to one of the residents who had been complaining to say yes there have been some significant hold-ups which put an entirely different spin on it there is talk one that had planned for Cheadle and Cheadle Heath that sort of got scuppered that sort of you know got the big thumbs down from the residents they're looking to bring not exactly that back labor will tell you that it's that they want to make use of this sort of walking and cycling money that they've got to make it a safer neighborhood but they will say that it won't be the return of, of the um, the planters, which, depending on which side of the defence you're on, that they're either either call them roadblocks or modal filters. But they're, they're the things that cause a big controversy. These big planters or some sort of block at one one end of a road, which only allows through cycle in cyclists or pedestrians. I think that could potentially cause an issue for Labour in. I mean, Cheadle Hume North is the big bellwether seat, really, the big bellwether ward, and I think the Lib Dems are probably already trying to make a bit of capital on that. David Meller, who's up for election again this year, he's the sole Labour councillor in Cheadle Hume North. When he won four years ago, he won three votes by two votes. And I've noticed that there's already a bit of um, sort of friction on that. He's calling out that it's nonsense that these, that these things are going to be brought back through the back door. But um, that's become a bit of a, definitely a bit of a political um, football. I would say another thing to keep an eye on, I'm not sure how this translates in terms of which wards this could really affect, but relocating Stockport Library from its historic home on the A6 to a new 40 million hub called Stockroom at uh, the Merseyway Shopping Centre. That has been a big controversy over the last couple, couple of years. It's been through a lot of scrutiny meetings. There's been a big petition against it. I think over 7,000 people signed it. Another thing that might, I think the Conservatives will, will focus on is, is council tax. It went up by 4% in Stockport when you include Andy Burnham's precepts. I think with the general and adult social care precept, um, that was only um, for 3.5%. Labour and Lib Dems actually got on for once. Uh, Labour accepted a, a Lib Dem amendment at the, at the budget setting meeting to um, basically issue um, a £15 rebate to all households in A to D. So that pretty much covers the increase for those households. But the Conservatives were very much along the lines of, no, we've got millions in reserves, we should be using that and freezing council tax. 
I think they will certainly be using that as one of their main lines of attack in, in this in this campaign. You spoke about the dynamic between the different parties and I get the sense that Stockport has quite an unusual political dynamic with the Tories and Labour on friendlier terms than you might imagine. What, what does that mean for how politics is, is carried out in Stockport? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I, I suppose maybe that's perhaps natural given Labour and Lib Dems are neck and neck in terms of the number of councillors. They're, they're the two groups vying for control of the council. It sort of puts the Conservatives in a bit of a kingmaker sort of position. When it comes to things like that vote last year, um, where they had to sort of like thrash out who was actually going to run the council, the Tories at that point came down on the side of Labour leader Elise Wilson. She was arguing that it wasn't the time for a change, that stability was needed. We were just coming out of um, the pandemic. The subplot to all this, if, if you like, really, is that while in the council sense of things, it's very much between Labour and the Lib Dems, in terms of their four constituencies really in that make up Stockport in terms of the, the parliamentary side of things, where in 2015, the Tories won Hazel Grove and Cheadle, uh, both gains from the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems are very keen to win those seats back. There is sort of like a suggestion, the Liberal Democrats will, will sort of suggest that that's why Labour and, and, and the Tories might be more willing to, to, to sort of freeze them out more because it's, it's in Labour's interest in terms of the town hall and it's in the Tories' interest in terms of... Um, parliamentary seats so that's um it's a bit of a subplot than how, how, how the sort of the national politics sort of impacts on the on the uh, on the local politics a few interesting battles ahead in stockport next day from thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 